You said something in the first half that I want to take up again, which is that for Curtis, the question is, you know, even if the pie is getting higher, as George Bush would say, which in a malapropism, um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we have more people um, today than we did before. Therefore, even if the ratio of middle class people increases in number, the absolute right, number right. of poor people is also increasing. Yes. Um, um, and what would his counter be to someone who says, well, give it time. You know, we're going to close <laughs> <Right>. that gap. <laughs> We've... The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. Nick Gruber, that's how I'm going to say your name. Did I get that correct? Um, Co Co yeah, Kobanich Co or Nick or Nick Gruber. Even I, I constantly shy away from naming myself Nick Gruber because we have a, a, a chanson singer here who's like almost the same name. It doesn't have any, any no, no, no relation. <laughs> okay, no relation. Well, but you yeah, are, yeah, you are the translator for Robert Kurz. Is that correct? I I have yes, I have been on this project of translating that book that has hadn't been translated that which got me into big trouble because I I kept talking to people like they were already aware of his body of work, which they weren't, and then everything is kind of people that just don't understand this at all. I'm not a that's the that's the thing that I just cannot cannot um, avoid, I guess, is being equated with the Robert Kutz guy. But I wouldn't say I'm one of the value theorist Marxists. No? No, I, I'd say I'm more, much more of a Marxist-Leninist, as we talked about. Mm -hmm. um, much less of a, much less of, you know, as I wrote in that short letter, um, Maybe we should talk about this afterwards. Yeah. I, I don't know, but he 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 threw feces at everybody, and mm -hmm. that included my faction. But it's not the same kind of feces that he threw at the liberals and the liberal conservatives. Okay, so but That's, Robert Kurz was a value theory Marxist. He was he was basically the founder of this entire thing, basically. I, I mean, I think I can what, venture to say. Yeah. Would Would you say that Moish Bastone was a co-founder, or was Moish Bastone influenced by him? Or I'm not super in. I I know Moish Bastone. I know that he was mentioned very often, but he was he was much more in the um. So that's the that caricature of Adorno that you guys have after this long study that he made, right? Um. What's the authoritarian personality, and then we just check off all the traits. And ah, yes, this is a 
das ist ein Proto-Fascist right there. Mm -hmm. um, Kurz wasn't that at all. And I think this reading this book should clar clarify and obfuscate at the same time, right? Well, when you say Marxist-Leninist, that you're a Marxist-Leninist, um, what do you mean? Because, you know, that's synonymous with Stalinism in certain yeah, circles. So that's are you true. A, are you, you're not, you're not claiming to be a Stalinist, are you? When you, when you. No, 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 I wouldn't. Of course, I, of course, I'm, you know, I'm happily sitting on the fence being a good left liberal Westerner like yourself. So, <laughs> uh, uh, yes. Okay. So, well, well, what would you say? <laughs> what, when you say, when you hear the word Stalinist, What what does that mean in contemporary discourse? What does it mean to be a Stalinist today? Um, mm. Do you think? So I've been reading Slavoj Žižek's work also as as many other people. Not every book, which is quite impossible, but the the the, the big ones. The first one, the, the sublime object of ideology. Mm. Let's say the parallax view, and then the big thick black one less than nothing these are the the corner poles mm -hmm. and he makes this argument against Stalin. he says the the old sophist gorgias you know from the platonic dialogue he was the, the arch stalinist mm -hmm. in that we are going to have this perfect unified singular one voiced call of the people and he's just a supreme uh supreme servant of the people that's why he's clapping all the time mm -hmm. when when people are applauding him he's joining in and while the fascists we we know they just take it in right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. corroborated so what what's a stalinist a stalinist is If we take that show trial example, is the one that speaks through the objective will of the people, right? But he isn't the subjective will. He's he's just this enforcer or primary servant of the of the objective will, mm -hmm. and that speaks through the organ of his person as the leader of the party, right? Mm -hmm. So, but it's. The, the the key insight here is the difference between the fascists and, uh, and the Stalinists, right? Is the do they join in? Do they see themselves as servant of a supreme will, or do are they in that metaphysical camp? In that, um, you know, the the, the wound that Karl Schmidt opened up that uh, liberal constitutions just cannot. How how should I put it? Um, Liberal constitutions cannot create this entirety of this whole thing. Hey, I'm paraphrasing. Well, uh, I'm a, uh, well, okay, but um, if it were the case that Stalin was merely the enactor and the enforcer of the general will or the common will, or um, I'm not sure I would oppose such a leader and um also uh, i'm not sure i could see the difference between stalin who claps along and biden or he Obama. would clap along too i guess yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. um or any democratically elected leader 
who claimed rightly that his power or her power came from the will of the people. Um, Wouldn't Putin say something like this? Perhaps. I mean, I don't know if Putin would clap along or 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 just soak in the applause, but but certainly most democratically elected leaders who have term limits and who understand that they're going to be replaced by some other figure who will enforce the general will, that they are not what's important, but the rather the process of democratic participation is what's important, would fit within that model, would be the Stalinists. So it seems to me that, you know, if you take Robert Kerr's up, uh, that the difference between uh, a, a socialist and a bourgeois Bonapartist leader is that the socialist understands that um, in order to, or certainly the Marxist understands that in order to actually enact the will of the people, you'll have to first overcome a set of social relations that mediate uh, that will and that alienate the population from themselves and their own power. Um, as long as we're producing the world in an effort to reproduce value as, as a, or you know, to increase the abstract labor time uh, that exists in the world, then we are not actually um, able to obtain our general will, which which would, you know, go beyond that abstraction. In fact, what we create uh, is quite literally alienated from us through the market, through and uh, we are exploited by our own system of production and distribution. So. It seems to me that the Stalinist enacting the general will in a revolutionary way would have to be enacting the will of the proletariat as they transform the means of production and the, and the social relationships of production into uh, a new form. It wouldn't just be uh, a matter of even giving them democratic control over uh, the working day as it exists now or over commodity production. So in any case, just say uh, state, state capitalism, right? It's yeah. It wouldn't be state capitalism. Um, shouldn't be. Yeah. It shouldn't be. The, and, uh, but the, but, but we can imagine a Stalinist figure uh, that would applaud along um, in, in a process of revolutionary change too. If he was actually uh embodying and enforcing the general will for radical transformation. Um, right. So I don't Can know. Bring Robert Kurz here because I, I personally, the Marxist Leninists are of course staying here and say, yes, Douglas Lane, you're quite right. And it's a good thing. We're not in power. Um, <laughs> <Robert> Kurt, <laughs> why, why is it a good thing that they're not in power? <laughs> Because we get to do these YouTube conversations, right? And uh, oh, oh, if you were in discussion. Oh, wait, wait. Are you <laughs> saying if you were in power, then I would be in gulag? Is that what you're saying? Well, <laughs> I would, of course, be a good Stalinist and accuse myself and say I've, I've been a bourgeois from the very start. And 
<laughs> I I am I am the supreme instrument of obfuscation. Right, right there. Um, um, yeah, I now my excuse myself. Yes. In my fantasies of what will happen after the revolution, um, I do imagine myself eating boiled cabbage and gulag. I, I, <laughs> so, so, um, and writing Can we move to Robert Kutz? Can we? Okay. we yeah, 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 go, easy go. Only, he has an easy way out of this. For him, as I wrote in that letter, I am, maybe I can... Maybe I can yeah, yeah, paraphrase yeah, myself right there, um, but I think it was it wasn't wasn't too bad. So for him, um, this is liberalism itself is a Bentianian uh, uh, penitentiary institution that Bentham as a as that catchword that kind of encapsulates this closed cybernetic system. You know, you have production on the one side and you have consumption on the other and everybody's happy. Then we, the liberal entry of this, um, there is no losing trade, right? Because even if you are on the side of the one that doesn't gain as much as the other side, you, you gained, otherwise you wouldn't have uh, entered into that trade relationship in the first place. Hmm. So if you add that that in, you know, well, the, I, the, I, buy, I the pie needs to that. grow. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the working class was constructed uh, through, you know, primitive accumulation and the, there wasn't much of an option for people. They could they either join the working class or <laughs> or they starved. Um, but but yes, nonetheless, continue. So for him, what this the totalitarian uh, management of people as he as he often put it in, in the book, is um, a kind of a defining feature of democracy and liberalism. Mm -hmm. That's the that's a key. There's a totalitarian element right there from the start, and he he makes this case from Hobbes. Say that onwards. again. I think I missed. I think I may have missed it. Say that one more time. What, There's what's a, to a totalitarian element in the liberal market democracy itself, which means that we all. That this circle does, is placed upon us, and um, there is no access. In fact, because it did, as I, as I just said, we can always just not trade, and somebody else will. And as a whole, the nominalist answer, as as Shishik would have said, um, it it doesn't matter what. What the individual relations are like, there's going to emerge one relation that is going to be dominant, and that's one that's going to drive history forward. And then we are going to approach this this culmination where the um, you know where all contradictions are solved, right? Where this closed circle actually works out for us. I I'm not sure if I if I put this rightly, but the 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 whole Zizekian project and the the liberal pro project and with culminating in that late shelling right in that okay there is or let's say Lacan there is an absolute negativity there's a place we cannot go and we have to work around this in some way this is something that the Stalinists just wouldn't accept mm -hmm. and what and is that absolute negativity for Kurz? He doesn't jump into this all the, that much. He's, he cuts across this before that. For him, liberalism and the market relation is already a totality. 
right? There, so of course you can act abstractly negate your colluding in in that system, but it doesn't matter because you're going to be spat out anyway, and somebody else is going to take your place, and the whole the whole system keeps keeps rotating. Mm-hmm. For him, uh, some some like a, a left liberal like Keynes, I think the he, he had an act for for great titles. He said. He quoted Keynes, let's build pyramids and dig holes. Build mm-hmm. pyramids and dig holes. That's that's about it. Why? Mm-hmm. Because we just need to be, you know, uh, the, the, he, he ties in Protestant ethic in this. He says, you know, devil's hands are the uh, idle hands are the devil's workshop, stuff like mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. That to him, that already was a totalitarian domination of people right there. And he he says this quite openly. The with Marx, uh, a negative and an affirmative notion of work constantly blur into one another. And the the, the labor market Marxists took on just one half of this. Well, because- let me. Would he say that? I mean, under subsistence farming, right in agricultural life. When most of the work done is domestic work done for to sustain yourself, right? Um, and only a limited amount is actually put into the market. Um, was that kind of work which was uh not alienated from the, the family and, and not alienated from the worker, but you know, used and to produce the things that they needed to survive, was that? totalitarian as well did that was that enforced upon uh was that a burden or a kind of exploitation or or is that preferable to To be quite honest he starts his history in the in the middle ages in european middle ages so the primitive accumulation he he just omitted right to to have that historical genealogy he Mm -hmm. said he plainly said so in I don't know, and then the 15th or 1600s, a carpenter would get like the, they would use rye equivalents to calculate what they got and they would get like 20 kilos of rye for an honest day of work. And 200 years later, it was six kilograms. That's it. That's that's the basic. He he didn't, he he just challenged um, that the market economy is fundamentally welfare enhancing. Because the great majority, because of course, if you uh, pick, if you cherry pick uh, certain stats, you will have great outliers, and you will have greater numbers of people being lifted out of poverty. But his argument was yes, but um, we have nine billion people now. Are you telling me that we have more less losers than when we had four billion people? Hmm. That's it. Basically, right. So we we quadrupled the both the winners and the losers. But if you quadruple five billion people or seven billion people, you get a much larger absolute number out of this. And that's the start of this argument, as I understood it after many many times reading it. So, so it goes a little he, bit against. Hmm? So okay. he advocates for localism and small scale production and and um against um the socialization of of production through 
mass production and industrialization. He's against all of that, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. He he was a councilist, a, a proper Rosa Luxemburgish councilist. So, but, but Rosa Luxemburg wasn't be... against industrial production. She was for workers' control. Of, right. But so, and the councils aren't necessarily saying, "Well, we need to create a." To be councilist, you're talking about the political form that uh, organizing production will take. You know the, but you're not talking about whether or not people are primarily subsistence farmers or whether or not there's a uh, exchange between uh, regions or uh, you know how much is being produced. Um, I have just the right text quote from Kurz answering that very question. Okay. He said. Rosa Luxemburg in particular embodied everything that the capitalist consciousness in general, the consciousness of the crisis in particular, hated to the core, the Jewish, the foreign Polish, the feminine in a form that wasn't even pet-like, a theorist, and the left radicalism with its vague memory of the future of an unthinkable liberation from the system of abstract labor. As I haven't mentioned this, you know, the... This is kind of a supposition. We have concretely labor, abstract labor. I think you have explained that distinction many times yeah. over. We yeah. don't need to do that again. Yeah. So he said Rosa Luxemburg was certainly caught up in the bourgeois categories of the labor movement, Marxism. Of course, she could not simply jump out of a long history of domesticating oppositional thinking. Mm -hmm. But with its theory of an objective inner limit to the capitalist system and the necessity uh, and, the ne and the necessary self-activity of the masses, it came closest to con it came it came closest of all to contemporary positions to the radical critique of the beautiful beautiful machine that bent him bird. Um, together with its political administration of people. That is why, with compelling consequence, it was the first act of democracy, mighty as it always was, to smash the skull of this 49-year-old woman with a rifle butt. Hmm. By Freischer, you know, veteran, German veterans from World War I. So he excluded her labor market Marxism from this entire thing because she said... She basically said there's an inner an inner limit, and that's central to Kurz's argument. It's also the, the source of the schism um, within the uh, value theorist Marxist, which happened in 2004 or so. That's when the, the group around Heinrich broke off from the Kurz group. Um, mm -hmm. Kurz called this a putsch. Right? What was a, is it the value form theorists or the value theorists? Is there a difference? I know there's a value form theory, and then there's. I I think I'm on thin ice here. Uh, I'd say oh, yeah, it's fair enough. Form. No, neue Wertkritik, neue Marxlektüre, they called it. So I'm mm -hmm. not sure what how they translated this. Just a new Marx, like reading Marx anew in from the 90s onwards, with Michael Heinrich of of obviously being a shooting star of the. Late 90s, early 2000s, when he was a young mathematician. Well, let me let me describe to you what I think Marx believed about what would be necessary in order to create communism, and you can compare it to what Kurz believes, maybe, and it may, and what Kurz believed, Marx believes, you know, because I, I, this is, but I, but I think Marx believed that the, a working class revolution to transform 
not the market, but the way in which things, the social relationships around production, which would then also transform the kind of technolo technological uh, uh, assets that, that the working class held on to, um, would lead to the creation of enough abundance that the necessity for a mediating um, value for exchange would fall away. Um, you know, from reading the critique of the Gotha program, he talks about the, the that. See, you're, would, you're on my side. Right? <laughs> Just, yeah. <yes>. yeah. <laughs> right. Right. I right. I accept this. I yeah. swallow it hook, line, and sink. Yes, you guys say. Right, right, right. So, but but nonetheless, he does this, Marx does this by pointing out the ways in which maximizing a particular form of value, which has to do with maximizing abstract labor time, leads to contradictions and cuts against the creation of true uh, abundance uh, in, an, in an irrational ways we can see now, and I think he saw it then, um, leads to crisis. And um, whether or not that crisis would be terminal, we can put that aside. Uh, and that only through the organization of the working class to transform their own activity would uh, something like socialism, let alone communism, be possible. And that that, that wasn't about um, escaping from useful work of all kinds. It was about escaping from a particular kind of work which could be turned into capital, uh, which is a social formation and not just a, a, a you know, a, a physical action, right? Um, it's so that's my understanding of of the Marxist project is to my for, for me it was always the um Schafe hüten, Fische fangen, Bücher kritisieren. Um, the tending sheep, catching fish, and criticizing books at the end of the day without being a fisherman or a sheep herder or a professional book criticizer. Right, and that could that be was... possible because the work that was being done to reproduce society would be so efficient um, and would be aimed uh, at providing... Uh, for society itself so that you wouldn't need to slave away all day to reproduce yourself. You would have lots right. of free time. Right. Um, uh, so you would be a freedom from labor by transforming labor, not simply by um, returning to subsistence farming or, or, or private uh, production. It, uh, yeah. That, that's good starting point, by the way, because why didn't that happen? Why hasn't that abundance come about? Why isn't it always limited to certain segments or certain regions of the world that all that um, well-financing effect of the market economy? What do you That's... think the answer is to that question? <laughs> I can, I personally, uh, I think wrong people have been in power, but uh, for Kurz, it was, it was baked into liberalism itself right there, right from the beginning. See, my answer would be that because we haven't actually had a revolutionary politics to transform production, we have continued to reprodu reproduce the social forms of, ca of called capital, and uh, and capital tends to go into crisis, 
and therefore it creates um you know an uneven kind of development puts nations into competition with each other not just in the level of who can trade more but also like who's going to have political control over resources and and um and, and those resources can include uh forms of production or factories and so forth and so uh and we can see that clearly over the last uh let's say 15 years mm -hmm. um from 2008 to today we've the the causes for conflict between china and the united states for example have to do with the way in which the economic crisis of 2008 has been shifted around and now we're in a, in a, at a point where some nation or another is going to have to take the hit, be set back, um, and and for their capital to be devalued. And the, the question is, who is it going to be? Um, that's that, that's how I look at it. And so uh, really? when that happens, the, the entire nation gets it. But yeah, yeah. I, I mean, no, I, I mean, obviously the entire nation doesn't like not every individual in the nation gets hit, but, but you'll see a, a total devaluation of capital. Some people in, as individuals will be winners in that process, but, but the total value of capital will go down. It, you know, they'll, they'll have an economic collapse. They'll have, um, you know, the, their, their ability to reproduce themselves will be destroyed until some capitalist or another perhaps a foreign one will come along and buy up everything they have real cheap. Um, you know, so, I mean, that is if they haven't physically destroyed it, that's another way to de devalue capital. But um, that would be my explanation as to why. That reminds me, this is very close to your compatriot, Frederick Jameson, he, who said wars, wars are basically the function of capital destruction. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You could... Uh, perhaps make that case yeah 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 that's what i think and but what was Kurz's explanation for why uh we because it's baked into liberalism not into capitalism or into um uh into production or the, into the value form but rather into the idea of democracy and mass production itself the i think the the, the common element is it's a good thing that you mentioned this because I, I get to mention Michael Heinrich in a positive way uh, mm -hmm. because he had this line that already in, I think it was in Locke, right? The mm -hmm. constitutional liberalism, the the produce of the servant was already priced in into the, the master's produce right there from the start. So mm -hmm. whatever whatever you, we are talking about, non-alienated work, it stopped prior to let's say the master and his his flock of people that he tended to his and retainers right <laughs> yes. mm -hmm. so, so he, well, you're yeah. you're saying that the the serf was already being alienated from his labor because he was the... in, in liberalism um this this distinction didn't even come into mind right 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 at the start Yes. So yes, he was already alienated in that way. In that way that he he worked on the state of his. Um, I'm, what's the other side of the retainer? The the lanes here. The uh, mm -hmm. the the aristocrat or something. Right, right. The aristocrat's land. He would work on the the lord's land, right. cultivate right, right. crops, 
take a portion of those crops for himself and give a portion to the Lord. Right? Give the entire thing to the Lord and take a portion for himself. Yes. Well, that's the. Yeah, I mean, if you give the entire thing to the Lord and then take a portion for yourself, then you haven't given the entire thing to the Lord. Um, right. But, but I mean, I could yes. you could say yeah. You could say yes, it differently. Yes. He gave the entire thing to the Lord, and then the Lord. He had a lease on the land. Some had a lease. Some were mm. part of the land or something, mm. right? But that's that's a relatively recent development. I, I think, at least here in my country, Austria, they I think they had this in the 1850s, in the aftermath of 1848, when they, um, let's say, socialized the land. Um, mm -hmm. which was divided. We have many mountains here for the large forested areas, and these forests were kept into the property, uh, were kept to the property of the of the aristocrats. But all the flat land where you could actually farm that went to the farmers who had to have a lease to the state or something, and the rich ones even owned their own land. Mm -hmm. But that that was kind of kind of the difference, right? But in any way, whoever worked on uh, behest of the of the farmers uh, was alienated from his own labor because it wasn't he wasn't working into his own pockets to apply mm. that liberal right. But terminology. I mean, Marx mm -hmm. Marx would say, but that um, that the theft from the surf was social it was direct mm -hmm. it was known the hierarchical relationship was uh, established the the surf wasn't free to work just anywhere right the surf right. didn't have any legal rights uh outside of the or certainly not the same legal rights as the lord whereas in a capitalist society it's the freedom of the worker to work anywhere he pleases um, that sets up abstract labor to begin with, because you know the the um, the uh, laborer and the capitalist both rely on the market and exchange to survive and reproduce themselves. Rather than growing food enough for himself and the feudal lord, the worker produces whatever the uh, capitalist wants and then gets a wage which he can use to purchase what he needs to survive in the market. It's, it's a very different relationship. And the, the fact that he doesn't get as much as the um, boss or the, or the capitalist, to put it more clearly, um, isn't the problem. That isn't the, that's just a technical fact. Of, right. That's my right? right there. It's a control that matters. Right, it's right. It's the control of the productive forces, but also the fact that the the um va the 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 abstract labor, the production of abstract labor, and the commodity form itself is in contradiction with itself and goes into crisis. The fact that you that um uh the fact that rather than aiming at producing useful things for the world, for society, even or for the capitalist. What's being aimed at is to produce the money form, right? And and this abstraction, which is quite a part. You could be wealthy, like you could live in Greece during, like uh, uh, you know, around 2010, and have 
a million dollars or euros in your bank account, but go out into the street to find, you know, to buy groceries and there's nothing on the fucking shelf. And, you know, and, and you, or you, or you could. That's a high argument, by the way. Yeah, right? We've, we've plenty, we'd have plenty of money, but nothing to eat. Right. <laughs> That's, That's right. <laughs> or, or vice versa. You could be, um, Giannis Varoufakis talked about this. You could, he had a best selling book in Greece right around the time of the economic crisis. And he never got paid, not because he didn't sell a, a million copies, he did. But because all the bookstores that were selling his book were going under and not paying their bills and going bankrupt. So, so he never, so the publisher never got paid. So he couldn't get paid, even though people, the, the, even though the people who had money were spending it on his book, it just wasn't working out in the total system. So you have this, you know, things are not direct. The, the, the you open just, just a big can of worms right there when you, when you, put books writing books into that commodity yeah right okay uh, yeah. I, don't, i don't mean i don't mean to put yeah. books in there because that's property relations and not yeah. not commodity relations but that's nonetheless the point one. is that yes. the point is that things you you can create uh what is needed and you can create a whole bunch of let's put it differently like during the, the pandemic they we they produced a, a huge amount of milk in america and then they right. just dumped it all down the drain Because yeah, right. because the, yes. the price was too low if they had used all that milk uh, to actually give people something That's to drink. A, yes, yes. We have a, a regional variant of the same story here. The, mm. We have this, you know, we have conscript, a conscript army, um, you know, big mm. state institutions, just mm -hmm. purely defensive. But they had... They, they were allocated a specific, uh, specific budget for milk. They would do exactly what you just said. They would put it down the drain so that it can get in the same amount next year because if they hadn't if they hadn't used it all up, they would just get less. Right. Right. So yeah, so this the the point is that we have a system that's in contradiction with itself where what you know are are the where what's useful and what's um actually financially uh or what's what actually is like there's two kinds of wealth. There's useful wealth and abstract wealth and abstract wealth dominates useful wealth. Um, so we have a system which is uh, at odds with itself. It's contradiction with itself. And the task of the revolution is to overcome that contradiction, maybe not every contradiction. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, it, it, I guess what I'm getting at with all this regurgitation of, you know, what is for me dogma um, is uh, that, I would have expected Kurz to be speaking a little more like I am now than to be talking about democracy. You're speaking very much like a Hegelian right there, you know, or like a Marxist, let's say, uh, mutually mm -hmm. interacting contradictions, all that. That's not part of Kurz's lingo, but it's, it's not. It's now it's due to the time uh, he was writing in 1990 after the f fall of the Soviet Union, right? So mm. there was no there was no audience for proper his historical materialism or now mm. for that we reinvention dialectical materialism, right? There mm. there just wasn't there just wasn't he would have I guess how would but but how it, could he write about value 
without writing about these kinds of contradictions that Marx describes in Capital between, like, say, use value and abstract value? How could he write about value without writing about value in a Marxist sense? Was he not meaning it in a Marxist sense? Of course he was. Of course he was. But remember, mm. he cut. He saw abstract work as a fetish, right there from the start. It's like you, you know that uh, David Graeber example of the, oh. the New York, the New York artistry or atelier or exhibition, and there's a lady sitting in front where nobody ever shows up, but you need to have that lady, but because otherwise mm -hmm. you're not an exhibition. Mm -hmm. So how does how do you subjectivize being in a job that you actually don't need to fulfill anything? You're just filling up a slot. And ah. Robert, Robert Kurz would say, yes, that's because it's a fetish right there. That's hmm. abstract work. Yeah, but when Marx wrote about the commodity fetish, he didn't mean it as the same kind of fetish that a shoe fetishist has or something like that. He meant that it actually has a real impact on the world it, it that this this has become not just an ideology in someone's head but a a, a, a material fact in the world and that's how the commodity is a fetish can can i read snippet 29 i think yeah we, read that yeah. we read it it's the same one that we we had last time anyway um snippet 29 social democracy this approach was rooted in liberalism's positivistic technical scientifically abbreviated concept of progress and that had its consequences along with more or less uncritically understood technological form of the factory system liberalism's abstract concept of work which it that inherited from Protestantism and the absolutist regimes in which it had refined, refined, that's a better word, uh, anyway, in which it had refined in a Protestant manner, in a capitalist manner, was also largely adopted. Marx actually meant the concept of abstract labor critically, but by no means clearly demarcated it from an affirmative understanding. With him, a critical and a positive concept of work constantly blur into one another. And in the reading of the Marxism of the workers' movement, this became a positive glorification of Protestant work virtue. And in the textbooks of the GDR, paradoxically, abstract labor became an economic state doctrine. This, let me just briefly intersect. There's this one, this one anecdote from the GDR, and I'm, I'm really not opposed to them. I let me, let me, let let's reform uh, Marxist-Leninism. But anyway, um, talking Our about Stalinism. Let's all be Stalinist. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So they had in West Berlin. They had IKEA stores, and mm -hmm. they would have these this really cheap IKEA racks. Not sure what the name is in 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 America, but a really cheap rack. Mm -hmm. And since the GDR was lacking so many raw commodities where they needed foreign currency to purchase it on the open market, what they had was state-induced labor power, right? So what ended up happening was in the GDR there were people assembling those racks, those IKEA racks that would later be sold in West Berlin. And the GDR would get those foreign funds to, you know, to, what's uh, the, what's the, the MMT were to, to furnish itself or to provision mm -hmm. itself, right? The, right. The state so they had, that so they became, itself. they came, became manufacturers of IKEA furniture, even though 
the whole idea of Ikea is that you build it at home. Is that right? <laughs> That's not those specific regs, right? But yeah. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So yeah, that, I'm uh, not... really, really, maybe they, you know, this sewn the sewn the the, the the wooden planks or something. I, or... Yeah, but in order for the, the GDR to 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 have enough capital to keep its economy afloat, it had to rely on trade. To, right. right. So yeah. Um and they and, needed exports in some way or fashion. And it, their right. export was labor yeah. power. Right. And but that was and and why was that necessary? Because it's not because they were going to keep the goods that you manufactured. They didn't have no. a, it wasn't a matter of useful stuff or raw materials or even manufactured goods in the GDR, but it was they they wanted capital. Right, they needed foreign currency to to conduct open market operations to provision themselves to buy what they didn't have because it's a small right. area, be West right. Germany. Because on the level of abstract labor or the level of value or or just on the financial level, they were uh, you know beset with with difficulties. They had debt or you know something like that, and in order to overcome their debt, they had to make money from foreign markets but it but they weren't taking that money they spent from foreign markets and spending it on imports were they they were spending it no. on things manufactured you there. mean the of course they imported stuff of the raw materials so that the economy could get be kept afloat and right right but okay. they are they're, so they're, like, the level so, that they thought that the state would needed what that that I mean, was settled well, yeah. Well, okay. So, what what's the big revelation here? What what am I supposed to say is so strange about this? That that the that a communist country was relying on trade and and abstract. I mean, we we knew that that was like that. If you're like me and you listen to the Forrest Johnson tendency, you know that 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 and and hell, even if you just listen to Lenin, you you know that they never that that no country including the communist ones have ever even obtained socialism, which is as a transition to communism, like a new form of economy. Right. They've always right. in, in the Soviet union, the aim was to break from the old uh, autocratic rule from the czar and create capital, create ca the, the liberal bourgeois capitalist society rather than uh, to, to, you know, and break away from the old monarchy. Uh, and then once they've done that after revolution in Germany, then they could create socialism, you know, uh, as the next step, I think, but th that never happened. Um, so Germany was only communist through colonialism. What was Kurz's point about the GDR with West Germany? Um, that little anecdote that I just reproduced would, um, corroborate Kutz's point in that capitalism is a fetishistically motivated human material totalitarian system that cannot, could not uh, emerge outside of a democratic liberal state right mm -hmm. there. That, that would be Kutz's argument and the, the criticism that he leveled towards the let's say state socialist regimes of the East was kind of the same criticism that he leveled towards the liberals mm -hmm. in the West. 
Mm-hmm. But uh, he, there's not much, not much difference. He was, he was against the idea that people should have to work. And I, for, I've been. Let me let me let me pre- briefly intersect a little a little story. I well, I mean, small, okay, but, but a, right, go ahead, go ahead. I have a small niece, eleven years old, and I asked her what she was up to in school, and she said, um, "Yeah, uh, there's this." art teacher that female art teacher walks around the classroom and then just draws rudely draws on people's sheets of paper and then she walks over to the next desk right and then she kind of made the segue to her music teacher who kind of the same type of personality and then i asked her so but what do you what do you like to do in your spare time and she said yeah draw and sing (laughs) <laughs> exactly the same thing, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So he was he was on to something. We just love to do this if we are not fremdbestimmt, if we are not guided by others to do this, alienated, as you said, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, right. Okay. So um I uh but but and his point about uh the, the IKEA manufacturing IKEA furniture was that's that, my anecdote. Let's not put that into the quotes. We, but oh, that's we your just, anecdote. Oh, it's good. Yeah. It, it, I got it from a different point. You can certainly look it up, but it okay. wasn't in one of Kurtz's books, but he made his point. Okay, and that, and okay, why, that yeah, that that you had to create alienated work in order to sustain the economy. They were a small country on a global scale. They were propped up by the East, by the Soviet Union. They, that's why it dissolved immediately when the Berlin Wall came down, when the Soviet Union dissolved. Also, the, the as the West put it, the vassal state, the vassal state in East Germany could um, cease to exist. So there was never any any Vietnam, uh, yeah, national communism, something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, all right. So, why are you translating Kurds? It seems like you're uh, a critic of him more than you are uh, an admirer. Um, right. Am I- yeah. Yeah. She, I translate. He, personally, I was just shocked last July when I saw that the book. Although it came out in 1999, it hadn't been translated in 23 years. Was he very influential in the German left? Yeah, somewhat, somewhat. Yes, the value. It it was always the the highest form of not being a left liberal, but still a left winger without being labor Marxist, labor movement Marxist. So he had you had somebody who's deeply influenced by Marx. But did not go into the um, state doctrinal labor market Marxism. In fact, he was very critical of it. In my translation, I even cut down on this a little bit, but it's still there, a lot of it. But yes. So hmm. my motivation was to to fill that gap, right? The, mm-hmm. It wasn't. In the end, this is not going to clarify anything. In fact, it's only going to make this more complicated, but it's against this easy, yes, we are the liberal enlightened left left on the West, and then we have these dark 
regimes in the East, which always rang so wrong to me, right? Also with Fijek and his constant, because he's he's really okay with, yeah, yeah, if they become fascists, then okay, this is their decision. But I never trusted Fidel Castro and I never trusted uh, the guys who run Venezuela, right? These, mm. these are the wrong guys, but yeah, with the with the fascists, it's kind of yeah. It doesn't have to be <laughs> fascism. It doesn't have to be. You know, this is how did they put it? The intellectual laziness on the left when you immediately say this is fascism, or you have to add liberal fascism to it, right? There's this meme with the with the um, rainbow flag colored military boot stepping on on people, right? Mm. So well, something I, like this. Yeah. I, I I kind of think that um, when you were criticizing Castro, say, um, or Hugo Chavez, that you're not doing he, it. He, from... <laughs> I wouldn't. He was. Yes. Just, well, okay. okay, right. When anyone who's who calls themselves a socialist or a leftist criticizes right. Castro, um, they are criticizing Castro. Uh, not uh, because in by saying, oh, this is the worst form of government possible. He is absolutely an enemy of the left. He is, you know, no. The, the question is, do we want to model our struggle on Castro's model? On the, and is Castro the horizon mm. for revolutionary change? Whereas if you're talking about um, Putin or Ordon or 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 Trump, the question is, is this actually fascism? It's a different question. It's not. No one thinks that Trump represents the revolution, right? No one thinks <laughs> this is the horizon of our political possibilities. Yeah. What what we're being asked to do when we oppose Trump is to say. We need to align with progressive capital, with the Democratic Party, with the with the so-called liberal, but I'll say progressive state, um, in order to oppose Trump because the fascist threat is the worst threat around. And right. what what someone like Slovoy would be would say is, is this really fascism? Is this the same as the Nazi threat, which justified a popular front? Is it, and if it isn't, then how do we think about the populist, uh, statist forms of capitalism, which have something like a dictator at the top, like Putin? Well, how do we approach that? And, and, and how do we differentiate it from uh, Xi in China? How do, we, how do we think through? I mean, because some people would want to put China as the horizon of our revolutionary ambition right now, or at least the direction that we need to go in. And so that's why you, you, he's like, eh, is it fascism? Are they really fascists? I don't know. They, they, we, why don't we not intervene in that sovereign nation? Uh, and, but then he'll say, but Castro, I never trusted because he's not, he's not suggesting he supports the, you know, U S invasion of, of, of Cuba. He's saying, I don't think that Castro is the end goal for uh, communists. That doesn't mean that I, by the way, that I agree with Zizek's vision of socialism. I don't, in many ways I don't. Um, but I definitely, what I would say is I agree with Zizek's approach to trying to struggle with dialectical thinking and, and 
and political engagement. I wouldn't have read most of the German idealist tradition and the German original if it hadn't been for that Slovene writing this in English for me, right? Yeah, so I, right. I, I, this is right. It is just the the teacher, the funny, the funny teacher that mm -hmm. we all off so yeah yes. yeah that's how i feel about him too listen we've been we've been recording for about an hour i want to keep you around for at least a little while longer but i want to talk about Obviously. but but i'm going to break this is the next part is for people can i just the, go yeah go ahead can i just the what robert kurtz what robert kurtz work reminded me of was michael moore and his his um dealing with flint Flint, Michigan, and the destruction of this way of life, right? Which which got more into his project. That that's what this reminded me of. It, it just it's it's the perspective of the downtrodden for a change. Mm -hmm. mm. And not we we're not talking about the winners. Talking about the winners lifting everybody up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Now we're talking about the huge masses of losers we are producing. Right, right. Well, let me start with that now, because I want to do the Patreon part. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both.